from Fresh Air Studios in Plymouth, this is In Conversation With, the podcast from Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce. With special guests, Luke Pollard MP. We don't know who vandalised my office a number of times with homophobic graffiti. The police never caught them. But what I said at the time is something I stand by. I want to have a conversation with that person. And Paul Burton from PB Media. I come from a small business family. My dad ran a small business his whole life. I've always been passionate about business, particularly when I worked in journalism. I loved stories about business. I loved stories about startups. I loved that kind of entrepreneurial journey. And I really wanted to have a bit of fun with that myself. Hello there, I'm Stuart Elford. I'm the Chief Executive of Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce with the latest in our series of Chamber podcasts, In Conversation With. And joining me for the Chamber chat section today is Luke Pollard, MP. Hi, Luke. Hi, Stuart. You all right? Yes, thank you so much for joining us. Now, Luke, I understand you are the Shadow Secretary of State. I always get this wrong. Shadow Secretary of State for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. Yeah, it's quite a job title, isn't it? It's quite wordy, especially when you add in Labour and Cooperative Member of Parliament for Plymouth, Sutton and Devonport ahead of that. By the time you get to the end of saying who you are, you've normally put half the audience to sleep already. But Shadow Environment Secretary is good enough for me. So I need very long envelopes to write to you. I know someone wrote to me recently and put Luke MP Plymouth and it got to me. Yeah, well, that's good, isn't it? You know, my brother is a consultant radiologist and he's Dr. Elford MBBS, BSC, ONS, MRCP, FRCR. But as a private joke between us, he never uses any of his letters, but I always put BPBH because he and I both know he is in fact a Blue Peter badge holder, which I think is the most important of all his qualifications. That really is. That's amazing. Yeah, he spotted a cat in a garden and wrote to them to tell them. It was (laughs) Churchill's garden. Anyway, I don't know why I remembered that. I need to clarify something straight away because I've done a bit of research on you. Luke, and I'm sorry about this really hard-hitting journalism again, but it says in your bio somewhere, I think it's on Wikipedia, that you specialise in international terrorism. That that can't be right. (laughs) I think that needs clarifying. Well, I think it was that while at university in Exeter, I studied politics, but I specialised in European Union studies and also the politics of international crime and international terrorism, because Back in the day, when I had brown hair and was much younger at Exeter, there was an awful lot of convergence around how we tackle international crime, the development of Europol, some of the amazing international systems that actually we've just exited out of with Brexit. But it was an attempt to recognise that there are problems that don't end at our borders. And international crime is one of those, climate catastrophe being another one. And the best way of solving uh, big global problems is by working across borders and making it as easy as possible to do that, which is sadly a wee bit more complicated after the 1st of January with Brexit. But nonetheless, still the right thing to do if we're to tackle terrorism, keep our communities safe and make sure that we are decarbonising in a productive way. Well, I'm glad you are a specialist in it, not a terrorist. I mean, when it (laughs) says specialising in international terrorism, it made it sound as if that's what you do for a living. So politics is always in your blood then, because you studied at university, but I see you also had a career in TV and PR. Has that set you up well for politics? I mean, I guess what I'm asking is, is it really like the thick of it? You know, is that what it is, the sort of PR spin city thing? Do you know what? The thick of it and W1A, there might as well be real life documentaries of what goes on in politics. It is often that ridiculous along the way. You just see an enormous amount of people running on empty, burnt out, surviving on caffeine and alcohol, sadly, and trying to make decisions accordingly. Since I was elected in 2017, I've seen some of the most amazing people doing some of the most incredible things 
but with a system that was designed for the 18th century with ridiculous ways of working along the way. And no wonder that quite often the output of politics is so poor. And no wonder that normal people look at politicians and go, well, they're all a bit odd. (laughs) And I wouldn't want to do that job because the entire way that our politics works is broken. And, you know, having done jobs in the media comms and in children's television, where I started off filming birthday people, working on the birthday people program that was filmed out of the then Carlton ITV studios in Plimpton before they closed it. It's given a different perspective on how things work. And certainly knowing what goes on behind a camera is sometimes really helpful to in theory improve your performance in front of a camera but it's a little bit like knowing how sausages are made it's kind of knowledge you don't always want to have and that is certainly the case about how our laws are made in this country (laughs) because politics is broken needs fundamental change and reform and i like to think that by being a challenger to that by asking difficult questions and proposing better ways of doing things especially using new technology and being slightly less stuffy about the way that politicians engage hopefully that is making making a little bit of progress towards what I hope is making our politics better because my word we need better politics at the moment we certainly do I was going to come on actually to that in a moment and there's not a lot of good that's come out of the pandemic you know sadly a lot of people lost their lives a lot of businesses in trouble but some of the things it has done is it's a bit like wartime is war is a terrible thing but it accelerates technology and innovation and our use of technology and innovation has accelerated massively in this pandemic I mean I wouldn't have been doing this interview with you a year ago we'd have met in a studio somewhere yeah the pandemic has been horrific the number of people that have lost their lives even in a region like the southwest where our rates have been lower than the rest of the country and the amount of businesses that are in crisis it has just been horrendous and i think when a country goes through something as serious and damaging as the pandemic people naturally want to know that at the end of it there's going to be something better at the start and quite a lot of my colleagues in Westminster especially in the Labour Party can I talk about this time as like a 1945 moment about what is the you know real radical reform that should come of it but for me I don't think we're yet at 1945 I think we're at 1944 so right. we're still in the crisis yeah it's still going on around us we're still losing people it still has an urgency around it but people are starting to discuss what can be better at the end of it learning the lessons of what's happened and that's got to be better governance it's got to be better preparedness it's got to be recognizing that the health of all of us depends on the health of every single one of us so it's no good ignoring the problems of poverty and deprivation as we've seen for far too long and i think we've got to have a better recognition that at this time where people have been spending a lot more time at home for those people that aren't key workers aren't still working on the front line be that in retail or the nhs or the other key worker roles we've got to have a better relationship with nature there's things that we missed and friends family going down to have a cheeky pint watching argyle at home park you know these are things that we've missed but actually what things we value also needs to be looked at again and i think friends family nature our health some of those things are ones that politicians need to look again about how things are being done what is our priority we put against things and that i think will fundamentally change our country but faced with the crisis of the pandemic the difficulties and the confusion around brexit and the fact that we're in the middle of a climate and ecological emergency there is no returning to business as usual we've spoken about this before in our meetings yeah. you know th- there is not a switch that government can pull that gets us back to where we were yeah we don't want to be yeah. there anyway do we 
And funnily enough, I was going to ask you about nature before I come back to the politics question about polarised politics. But you've got a bee in your bonnet, so to speak, about pesticides. I do. And so I am a big greenie. So I describe myself <laughs> as red on the outside, green on the inside as a Labour MP. And I think the urgency of the action on the climate is really important. And whether it's a Labour Party in government at the next general election or the Tories we have at the moment, we're going to need to find a way of helping our politicians make difficult decisions that might be unpopular, but are in the best interests of our planet. And one of those is about supporting bees. Now, everyone bloody loves bees for good reasons. Our entire planet's ecosystem would fall down without bees along the way. And so the government's decision to lift the ban on bee-killing pesticides, because it's become convenient to do so to support sugar beet farmers in the east of England primarily, I think is wrong. Mm. I want to see support for farmers, but you can't be lifting bans on bee-killing pesticides because it's politically convenient to do so. And I think for me, this is a real important challenge. Now, I want government to make better decisions in general as a standard. But when it comes to something like this, when there's a ministerial decision sitting on their desk, they go, do we stick with a ban that we know is the right thing to do, we know is popular, but we know is going to have some consequences? Or do we roll it back and allow the rollback of other things when it becomes convenient to do so? Well, I think at a time of climate crisis, you've got to stick to your guns. You've got to protect the planet. You've got to make the right decisions. But we also need ministers that are able to make tough decisions like that and then explain why. Why are they taking steps to defend the planet and not making it easy for a short-term gain? Why do you do that? Well, you do that because I want to see us have a planet still to live on, still to pass on to our kids in the future, and not to see rampant, out-of-control climate crisis, as well as the loss of habitats and species, which is what we're facing if we don't take better decisions, frankly. Absolutely. And funnily enough, I think that's one of the things that's missing is that explanation. So, you know, I would have liked an explanation as why certain people voted against the free school meals. I'd like to know why Mm. people have voting against the bee pesticides. There doesn't seem to be that transparency. And it's not a political point because the Chamber is apolitical. As you know, we work with everybody for the good of the business community. But it's just that explanation. And politics has become very polarised lately. And, and sadly, we saw that in the States, horrendously polarised, you know, the post-truth era. And the public are getting a bit mm-hmm. fed up of that. You've got to be one way or another. You've got to be extreme left or extreme right or extreme red or extreme blue. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of cross-party working. And yet, on a small scale, when you see what can be done with cross-party working, and when I say on a small scale, I mean, the example on a small scale is look at the box in Plymouth, where Mm. All parties got behind it. Fantastic. I mean, what a great thing for the city. Does that frustrate you? Because we're not particularly joined up in the southwest, are we? No, we're really not. It does frustrate me. It's something that drove my journey into politics and the fact that I've seen people who were frankly not delivering for our region. As one of the only two Labour MPs in the far southwest, every other member of parliament in our region is blue, Mm. but they don't work together. And as a region, we don't work together. So I've been very vocal. I want to work with every single Tory MP. I want to work cross-party, putting aside any differences that we might have to make sure we're putting it in. And sadly, I mean, you'll know my frustrations on this, that I get Tory MP after Tory MP, especially in the Plymouth area, say, oh, we're not going to work with you. We're not going to do this. I'm like, look, I'm not looking for new best friends. I'm looking for someone to make a collective combined case on the issues that we need, where that's about funding for our crumbling transport system, where that's about funding to get more homes delivered that we need, where that is about support for our local businesses. The reason that cross-party working is so important is because there's jobs that I can do as an opposition MP that a government MP can't, but there's things that a government MP can do that I can't do in my position. And that's why we need to work together. But one thing for me that 
comes from this frustration around a refusal from some of our local blue team to work together is the fact that it materially damages our region. We look at other regions, the East Midlands, the Northwest, the London MPs, they do work together. They've got a combined action plan. And they do so because they know it's in the best interest of the people they represent, but also that it would be impossible for them to refuse to. And so, yes, I want to see politicians take up the offer of cross-party working that I make fairly frequently. But I also want to see the business community not have a single moment of complacency about this to say, oi, MPs, work together. It's simply unacceptable that there's not more joint working, that there's not a collective effort along the way. And I think we are slowly getting there. Slowly, Um, but we are. That is something that I think, you know, we've got a fairly pedestrian bunch of MPs as a region, and that does lend itself, I think, to better coordination, better rallying around a small number of issues that we can go and win and then move to the next one. But it also means that our business community need to find their voice at the same time, be less accepting of behaviours that aren't in support of our region, and be vocal about it. Now, there's ways of encouraging people to get there, privately, publicly, but we should have no time for MPs that don't work together and we should be unafraid of calling them out. Absolutely. And you know, I chair British Chambers of Commerce Southwest. I recently wrote to you with our sort of manifesto position statements. You came back to me, one of the few MPs who did, by the way, and you asked a very pertinent question. Right, what's your specific ask? I've done a lot of work past that and we'll have to pick this up outside of this because that would become quite businesslike and this is supposed to be a much more <laughs> informal interview. But yeah, I have picked up some real specific asks which I'll pick up with you and British Chambers of Commerce Southwest are going to do exactly that. We're going to call the politicians to account and say, come on, guys, work together. Still to come. Paul Burton from PB Media. Honestly, I'm terrible for finding time to work on the business and every strategic webinar, podcast, everyone says the same thing. Follow the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce on Twitter at Chamber underscore Devon and search for us on LinkedIn. Make sure you don't miss out on future episodes. Hit subscribe now. You're famously not exactly best friends with one of the Plymouth MPs. You know, MPs can be incredibly unkind to each other, actually. I've noticed, and what have you, you know, in politics generally. Do you have to develop very thick skin in politics? Yeah, you do. And if I'm honest, that's not my natural tendency. I don't like this kind of thick skin stuff. I try to live by the values that I want to see others do. So I don't engage in social media abuse, although I get quite a lot of it, including from other parliamentarians in the region, which Mm. frankly is not good enough. I don't hire family members to work in my office. I make sure that every single single position that I hire is publicly advertised. Those things matter to me because they're about the values about how you conduct yourself in public life, how it works. But again, the same bit is certainly true. I mean, I had a conversation with some of our local journalists and said, why don't you call out when an MP is abusing another one at 10 o'clock in the evening and throwing personal insults around? Oh, that's just what he's like. I was like, well, I don't think we should be accepting behaviour like that from any parliamentarian. I don't accept it from anyone in the Labour Party. I don't accept it from anyone in the Conservative Party or vice versa. And I think one of the challenges is how we get beyond that. Now, despite the rough and tumble of politics, I still want to work with all our local MPs to achieve stuff for our city. Because in the absence of that cross-party working, I'm just not seeing us getting the stuff we need. Yeah. You know, the entire government majority, whopping as it is, is made up of Southwest MPs. If you took all the Southwest MPs out of the equation, the government wouldn't have a majority. So no matter where the focus that goes on the Midlands or the North or those horrendously termed red wall seats, well, we've got the same number of seats in the Southwest to get stuff. So let's get stuff. And if along the way, if the price of that cross-party working is that I have to be a punch bag who doesn't fight back, 
to do so because I don't think I want to get myself in the gutter in those fights to get there, then so be it. But I want to see us get stuff at the end of the process. And it's the absence of us getting our fair share, which is something that I feel incredibly strongly about. As someone who, you know, was born in Plymouth and lives in Plymouth, I see other parts of the country getting more stuff than we do better funding, better resourcing, more attention, then that's not right. And that's the kind of journey that we have to do to change. And parliamentarians have a role in that. The public have a role in that. Business voices, local government, they all have a role in that. And if part of the thing that we've got to do as a region, and certainly with Plymouth as a city, you know, we've got so much going for us, but we've always hid our light under a bushel and then we've hid the bushel. Mm. And I think Plymouth's got to be better at telling our brilliant story, telling us how the amazing stuff that we've got, the amazing ingenuity, the amazing businesses, the world-class research, our incredible natural environment, be louder and proud about those things. But also, let's be clearer and more relentless in our campaigning on those bits that we haven't got right. Well, funny enough, Luke, I'm going to come to the positive stuff in just a moment, but if I could just hit on one more sort of negative, and forgive me asking, but in 2019, your election office was vandalised with homophobia slurs did that demotivate you or did that actually make you even more determined no i think it had the effect of wanting me to push on and Mm. i'm Plymouth's first ever out mp and i think that gives me or requires me to have a special responsibility to not only to talk up about lgbt plus issues but also to make sure that in that argument that i'm forwarding a constructive approach to bring people together. Now, we don't know who vandalised my office a number of times with homophobic graffiti. The police never caught them. But what I said at the time is something I stand by. I want to have a conversation with that person. I want to listen to why they have such homophobic views, why they think vandalism is a way of expressing it, because clearly that's not good for them and it's not good for our city about it. Now, it is easy, I think, in the turbocharged hate-filled politics where the social media algorithms will accelerate if there's abuse or if there's controversy. So incentivizing all the wrong behavior in my mind, I think there is a role for parliamentarians to actually not just fan the flames, but to calm the waters and say, this is not cool. This is not the way we do things in Plymouth. And what was, I think, the most reassuring thing for me is that that happened just at the start of the general election campaign. And it was a tough general election for my party. It was a tough one for Labour in the city. But the amount of people that I spoke to on the doors who said, we saw what happened to your office. That's not good enough. Mm. We didn't like that. That's not who we are. I think gave me this reassurance that actually Plymouth is this good, decent city. Yeah, We don't always wear our values on our sleeve. We don't always as confident in a kind of overt way. But we're a decent city full of decent people. We are. And do you know what? That vandalism says more about that person than it does about you. And you've handled that in an incredibly big way. And I admire you for wanting to engage with that person. And the only positive I could take out of it, it highlights all the good that came out of it with Plymouth supporting you and Plymouthians supporting you. The sad thing is that that person, and as I say, it it says more about that person than it does about you, that person doesn't obviously feel they've got a voice and has some anger. Mm. And as a society, we've got to get to bottom that or we'll end up in the US where everyone is so extreme in their views one way or another. And it doesn't matter whether truth comes into it at all. You just have this polarized view, which is very sad. I just want to move on to some of the positive stuff then. And I'm glad you alluded to it. You know, I feel privileged in my job. I've gone to places and seen things that I think I wish I could take the whole of Plymouth with me and show Mm. them what's going on. You know, the brain tumor research that is world-class leading Plymouth Marine Laboratories that has got people from 
all over the world studying because this is where it's happening. What are you proud of in the Southwest? What do you love the most about our region? I mean, this is home for me, so I am very proud of where we are. As a city, I think it's hard to narrow it down to any one thing that I think Plymouth should be incredibly proud about. Because actually, there's a perception that we're a city that has only been defined by the Royal Navy, by the dockyard, or that we are only a city that only has students in. And, you know, you can have different conversations with people that kind of play on those cliches. Actually, Plymouth's got an incredibly broad and diverse economy. Yes, we've got some amazing public service roles, both in our NHS and in our military and in the civilians that support our fleet. But we've got world-class science at the Marine Biological Association, Plymouth Marine Labs, the University, Safos, and many more. We've got an incredible ingenious private sector that specialises in high-end precision manufacturing, the precise type of stuff that... If you listen to governments for the past 20, 30 years of all colours have said this is a type of jobs that we want. We've got those here. And I think we've got an incredible story about it. And I think the thing that holds us back is our caution about saying so. Now, sometimes you hear people say, oh, people in Plymouth aren't proud of their city. But actually, I think the opposite. I think we are very proud And we express that pride, not through overt showings of that pride, but in a quiet pride. Mm. And that is something that, as a Jana, we have to change. I want us to change because if we are better at telling our story, we'll inspire more people. We'll attract more visitors. We'll attract more investment along the way. And that's when we can start using those strengths to leverage support to deal with the areas where we do need a wee bit more help. But my word, I mean, if you think about it, if you were a different city that had Plymouth Sound, that amazing natural harbour that had our science base, that had, you know, the incredible world-leading research into autonomous marine systems that we've got, you know, coming out of Turnchapel, out of South Yard in Devonport, they'd give their back teeth for us. We've got the biggest science park in the south of England. Yeah. But you wouldn't know it. It's fantastic. I was just thinking about, we have these wonderful things. And I've seen, since the schoolboy, I've seen Plymouth not live up to its aspiration. And I've seen, sadly, several brands come and go. You know, I can remember Spirit of Discovery and Positively Plymouth and None of them really mm-hmm. seem to resonate. When Britain's Ocean City came in, I remember thinking, yeah, I sort of get it. I'm not quite sure, but I kind of get it. And then when the National Marine Park was announced, I thought, that's it. That has captured what Plymouth is about, and to an extent, the region as well. But what Plymouth is about, and it not just gives us civic identity, but it gives us civic pride, everything on, under, in the water. You know, I just get that. And I think that is something we can all get behind and be really proud of. I'm just aware of time, so forget me moving on. But is there something you're particularly proud of? What do you want your legacy to be if you weren't lucky enough to be elected again, or even if you are and you're here for 20 years? What do you want people to say, or what will you look back on and go, yeah, I'm glad I did that? That's something really great. Well, I think the National Marine Park is the campaign that I am most proud of. And I'm glad you raised it because we have something incredibly special in the sound and on shore with the research and engineering jobs but we weren't saying that story and we've got one of every single type of protections on the sound that you could have from european designations to triple si's to marine protected areas bits to protect our seabed bits to protect birds but actually you could stand on plymouth Hoe and ask someone which bits protected and people wouldn't know no. and that for me is where the power of the national marine park kicked in and plymouth city councils and announced that as part of the delivery program to make the National Marine Park real and tangible for people, they're going to be returning the pontoons and the rafts to just outside Tinside. Incredible because it makes it real. And as a wild swimmer, someone who, you know, regularly every week goes for a dip in the sounds, you know, it is incredible to see how during lockdown and the restrictions over the past year, more and more people have found their sea legs, have started swimming, have started valuing 
this incredible place that we have. And I think for me, that was, you know, a campaign that I worked with people from the university, from a variety of different groups. And it was something that kind of captured the imagination. I was honestly expecting when I first proposed it in 2017 that I would spend five years banging my head against a wall trying to make the case as to why it matters. But just like Britain's Ocean City, it did capture something. It did make people work. I mean, the only thing about the old brand that I do miss is the sign on the A38 that used to be cleaned out so it said Spirit of Disco. <laughs> I kind of missed. I'd forgotten that, but yeah, I like it. Funnily enough, I swear you've read my questions because I was going to ask you about this. I've actually written down, <laughs> I hear you're one of these mad people who likes to throw themselves into cold water. And somebody said to me, who does it, said, oh, well, you know, you feel so great afterwards. And I thought, well, mm-hmm. if I jabbed myself in the leg with a fork and then stopped, I'd feel better for stopping. Surely that's the same thing, isn't it? I mean, what <laughs> no. is this throwing yourself into cold water about? Do you know what? Wild swimming is incredible. And I started getting involved with it when Lewis Pugh, the UN Ocean champion, yeah who actually comes from Plymouth, even though he has a very strong South African accent from where he grew up after his time in the city. When he came to Plymouth to promote his long swim from Land's End to Kent, when he swam the channel the other way around. And it was incredible seeing the spirit, the friendliness of people who are swimming in the ocean. But the weird thing is, right, you know, I'm a Jana, I'm really proud to be from Plymouth, but I hadn't swam in the sea in Plymouth until that point. And it's amazing how many people have spent their entire lives in our city and go to Big Breed, or they might go over the bridge to Cornwall to go to the sea. But you can do it right here in Plymouth. But I think for me, this is one of those things that kind of shows an inequality in our city as well, because about a fifth of our kids, depending on the survey you're looking at, a fifth of our kids have not only not been in the sea, have not seen the sea. That is outrageous, isn't it? That's a criminal statistic that we've got to it's do something about. It's what deprivation means to our city. And so when people doubt about you know, the poverty stats, you know, we're a city of two cities, an affluent one and a poor one. And what we've got to do as a city is realise that our future depends on the success of both those cities being lifted up. And we can do so by, yes, making the case for the investment that we've been denied so far, making the case for us coming together, for dealing with things like not enough public transport, not enough horizon scanning, not enough opportunities for our young people, especially from poorer backgrounds. But we can do so by harnessing the incredible resources that we have as a city. And I think flanked by Dartmoor to the north, Plymouth Sound National Marine Park to the south, and amazing countryside on either side of us, we have all the resources we need if we have the will to get our young people involved, to expand their horizons, to provide those opportunities so they can succeed, whatever their background. I am optimistic about the future for our city. We've had 10 tough years with austerity cuts that have hit how the city council in particular, how public services work in our city. But I'm optimistic that we can, despite those cuts, make a change in direction of our city that is positive and uplifting and importantly, one that doesn't leave people behind. And that, for me, as a Labour politician, something that drives my politics and my passion, it's really important that the city that emerges from the pandemic at the end of it not only has a better relationship with nature, not only has a will to tackle poor air quality, not only wants to create a decent, well-paid jobs, attracting more tourists, yes, getting more people to spend their money here, making sure everyone lives in a decent home, but deals with the fact that The pandemic highlighted that there are kids in our city that go to bed hungry every single night. Well, there were before the pandemic as well. So what is our ambition for after the pandemic? And I think in that way, that 1944 moment where we're looking perhaps one year ahead to the end of this crisis, what are we going to build 
to make it better? What are we going to build that learns the lessons of the sacrifice of people during this pandemic? And I think we do have a bright future ahead, but only if we learn those difficult lessons that will require us to, I think, reflect on our own behaviours as yeah. individuals and certainly those folks like me in the public eye about you know how we vote, what policies we support. But there has to be something better at the end of this. And I think people looking for hope. Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me of the quote Sitting Bull, apparently. He used to say, let us sit down and talk about what a world we can make for our children. What a fabulous mm. thing to think about. You know, think further. And so another one, I think it's a Greek proverb. It says, the world grows great when men plant trees under whose shade they will never sit. And yeah. start looking further forward, further ahead. Anyway, we're all very serious stuff. We don't want to talk about serious stuff. And I'm sorry, I've got to wrap this up now. But I've got to ask you, because before we started recording, I made a comment <laughs> about your background on Zoom that I said you look like you're in a hotel room. And, and I meant it as a compliment. It's very stylish. And now you tell me that that mm. painting over your right shoulder is an original Pollard. But not a Brian Pollard, it's a Luke Pollard. It is. It was in 2010, I had a concussion, major concussion, really bad. And my brain wasn't working. And I found interacting with the world, it was, uh, the best way to describe it, it was too busy, too noisy, too many visual stimuli. I couldn't cope with it because of my injury. And someone gave me the recommendation of painting as a way of taking your time, harnessing your skills, centering yourself after a big injury. So I started painting, look, I'm no Brian Pard, I'm no Martin Bush or Sue Wills, by no means. But for me, being able to express how I felt and to kind of like come to terms with what was a horrendous experience with a big brain injury was, I think, really useful. And the art that I have hanging up behind me is a reminder to me of you can go through tough times and you can take steps to get over it at the end. And I think it is worth remembering where you've come from. What's your own personal journey in these things? Because I think there's all too often this idea that, you know, politicians are grown in test tubes um, plopped out and they go do some voting and then they win or they lose. And that's kind of what they do. And actually, you know, I want more people in our city, frankly, to think of themselves as being able to contribute to public life, be that as a local councillor, police and crime commissioner, a member of parliament, whatever it may be, to feel that they have a stake in what's going on. And I think the more that we can set out a journey to make politics more human friendly, to listen more, to do so with values that are not about hitting each other overhead with big sticks or to sending abuse on social media or that kind of like hate-filled division, which is very popular at the moment, but it's not my style of doing politics. I think that can only be for the better of our city and for our country if we move in that direction. And I quite enjoyed that little bit of painting. And actually, if you go down to Union Street at the moment, the Plymouth Artists Together initiative have artwork from loads of different people to try and cheer up a bit of the city that could do with a little bit. It's where the old Two Trees pub used to be. I've got a piece of artwork on there that Mike Vosper and his team kindly let me paint. And so I've managed to get into it again during this lockdown. And it is a great way of just kind of relieving a bit of stress, a bit like wild swimming, taking yourself away from what you're doing on a daily basis, doing something different, and then at the end going, yeah, that was good. So it may not be just politics. You know, your legacy might be some wonderful artwork that in years to come is going to sell for millions. But there we go. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. Look, really appreciate you joining us. Really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Thank you so much for your time and good luck. Thanks, Stuart. And now, Chambermaid, introducing business owners from across the southwest.
Hello there, and welcome back to part two of our In Conversation with Chamber podcasts. This is Chamber Made, where we speak to business people, uh, members of the Chamber, about how they've started their business and all about the things that inspire them. And I'm delighted to be joined now by Paul Burton of PB Media. Hello, Stuart. How are you? Hello, Paul. Now, I've got to tell our listeners straight away, this is slightly odd in that I'm speaking to you down the line because of COVID. We have to be completely secure. But normally, you're in the office next door to me. I am indeed. Yeah, it feels very strange to have you so far away. Yeah. So Paul is in the chamber building and it's great, a really good addition to the team. Tell us a bit about PB Media. How did it start? How long has it been going and what made you suddenly think, right, I'm doing it? So it has been going for two and a half years now. The company was officially incorporated in March 2018. Before that, I worked in newspapers for just over 15 years. And most recently, editor of the Herald and Associated Digital Products in Plymouth. I've lived in Plymouth for 10 years or so now. I had, for the time building up to thinking about creating my own company, had been spending a lot of time working on digital transformation of the industry that I worked in, particularly looking at developing the digital products that the Herald had. And I'd also spent a lot of time working with local businesses, um, small, medium and large organisations on how to do the same in their organisations. And as the months and years kind of went by, you start to realise that you're accumulating a lot of that knowledge and Mm. that a lot of that knowledge would be very useful to, presumably, to a lot of people. And I wanted to run something of my own. That was a real kind of passion of mine that I'd harboured for a long time. I come from a small business family. My dad ran a small business his whole life. I've always been passionate about business, particularly when I worked in journalism. I loved stories about business. I loved stories about startups. I loved that kind of entrepreneurial journey, and I really wanted to have a bit of fun with that myself. The company, when it started, I was essentially a freelancer who was providing a kind of consultative service to people and dispensing my knowledge on things like how to run your website effectively, how to engage people on social media, how to run an email marketing campaign. And bit by bit, the company has started to become a little better defined, particularly the last 12 to 18 months, as we've got used to the things that we do best, the stuff that gets the best results for clients. And we begin to bolt in more skills from it being just me. We now have dedicated people on content and copywriting and social media management, development and design, particularly for websites. And in the last six months, in-house full-time videographer, which has become a huge part of what we do now. Especially in these times, I'm sure. Yeah, who knew we were all going to race into that world quite so fast? I remember someone saying that starting a business is like standing on the edge of a cliff looking down, and then you, at some stage, sooner or later, you have to jump off, start flapping your arms, and hope that you can learn to fly before you splat into the bottom. Do you remember that moment where you just said, right, I'm doing it, and you took that step? and you handed in your notice or started the company or made that big step? I do. I suppose that's the hardest bit. Saying that you want to go off on your own, um, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that's one of the hardest decisions you'll ever have to make. And it's a cliche, but it genuinely is. And I can remember the day we were out for lunch, I think, on my girlfriend, bless her, on her birthday. I made the decision over lunch 
And I'm not sure it was the present that she had envisaged, but I can remember <laughs> us getting into a chat about it. And I said, I'm just going to do it. Otherwise, I'm not sure I will ever do it if I don't do it now. So there was a part of me that was thinking, it was always confident that we would have a, an element of differentiation and you know, a reason why people will come and want to work with us. But we were very much going to go into a sector that was probably going to get quite competitive in the next five years. And I thought, you know, if we were going to do it, now would be the time to do it. And kind of lockdown has proved that in some ways. So not only did you not give her the present she wanted, (laughs) you weren't really present during your birthday lunch with the girlfriend, were you? I was present. It was a very nice lunch, to give you that. But yeah, I'm not sure she was ready on her birthday to have me say that I'm going to withdraw my regular monthly salary and replace it with a bit of a gamble on a business plan that I don't have yet. But I was lucky enough that I had a really good relationship with my boss, which was Bill Martin, Western Morning News editor and now editor-in-chief in in the wider region. We had a really good relationship and I talked it through with him and we worked through an extended notice period of about three months or so, which gave me a chance to kind of make a bit of a plan. Mm. However, the next big bit is when you actually leave the job. That's when you really do feel like you're no longer standing on the edge of the cliff, but you're actually kind of halfway down falling. How did that feel? Freefall. Quite scary because you can have all the plans in the world when it comes to actually executing the plan. It's a lot scarier. And I think when you start that process, it's not necessarily the work, it's the fact that there is no work, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so there's lots and lots to do, but you start with like no clients, no income, unless you're a bit better prepared than I am. And your days go from suddenly being really busy to not have any kind of operational work to do, just you know, no. building a business from scratch, which is actually quite terrifying. Oh, it is. I did exactly the same, Paul. I mean, looking back on it, ridiculous. I started a business. I even took a unit at the science park without a single client. And yeah. I can remember the first day in business staring at the phone, hoping it would ring, <laughs> and thinking, I better do something to actually get some clients in. I thought they'd all just come flooding in, but then you didn't really think that you actually had to go out and get these no. clients. So I've got to ask you, before we move on to a slightly different subject, are you still with the girlfriend? Oh, yes. She's just left the office. Yeah, she's still here. Okay, I would you- prove it by dragging you in, but... She's generally just taking the dog for a walk, so... Ideal. Okay, I just needed to make sure that you hadn't (laughs) completely blown it. If you'd like to feature on a future episode of In Conversation With, send an email to info at freshairstudios.com. If you could go back in time, how far would you go and what would you whisper in your ear about business? I mean, I'm sure there's lots of things you could whisper in your ear about life choices, but about business, you're going back in time. Where would you go? What point would you go to and what would you whisper in your ear? I think that every entrepreneur at the start of their, sorry, that sounded quite high and mighty and assumptive, but I think anyone who starts a business is an entrepreneur and it takes a little while to recognize yourself as that. I think every entrepreneur at the start of their journey needs to be told that one, to swallow your pride and to stop worrying about what people might think of you despite whatever you might have achieved in the past. I think you also need to be told that you may think that you're a special case and that your business is very unique and that you have a set of problems that no one else could possibly have faced. But actually, many, many millions of people have faced those exact same set of problems. And if I could go back, I would tell myself to learn more about the basics of running a business. I think, you know, most people go into this very good at something and then business will, at the start anyway, naturally succeed because they are very good at that thing, whatever that skill might be. But to truly develop it into a business... It needs to go from being your job, even if you work for yourself, to becoming a business. And that requires 
investment and time in working on it. And when you first start, you have this kind of honeymoon period where that feels wonderful, especially when the first couple of clients come in. But my God, if I could go back, I would have used that time a lot more effectively to actually plan how the business was going to operate. You're absolutely right. The world is littered with businesses that failed, even though they were good businesses with talented people. I mean, running a business isn't the same as doing what you do as a job. And those skills are what we as a chamber try and bring to people. And in fact, we're going to launch a whole series of supportive events and programs to help businesses with those very things to actually do the business, to go online, to take their business digital, to think about marketing, to think about all the things that you suddenly have to become an expert in overnight when you start your own business. Mm. So on that journey, I mean, it's not been that long a journey so far, but on that journey, what's the highest high and the lowest low so far? Oh, the highest high has got to be the chamber chamber asking us to work with us. Yeah, Uh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Good answer. And if you hadn't said that, of course, you'd have been fired as the person (laughs) helps us with our community. No, but seriously, what was the highest high and the lowest low? I think the highest high, and if any entrepreneur tells you that this isn't the highest high, I reckon they're lying. It's when you get your first client and the first bit of money comes into the bank. You can't really beat that feeling. I wish I'd have done what they do in the films and put the dollar bill in a frame and banged it to the wall or whatever. But I think at the time you get so caught up in how you're going to pay the bills and stuff that you kind of don't necessarily recognise how significant that is. But yeah, that's got to be the highest high. I think employing staff for the first time suddenly makes you feel like a proper business Mm. and that's a real high. I think that in terms of the lows... Well, I mean, lockdown has clearly been a difficult period for everybody. I'd yeah. be lying if I said that hasn't been a hard 12 months, even though our services have been in demand. I think I have a workaholic tendency anyway, and lockdown has made, you know, it discourages a lot of people from taking a break and taking a holiday because you mm-hmm. feel like you need to just keep working in order to survive. I reckon my lows have come when I've gone months without taking any time off. And Which is not healthy. Yeah, exactly. And that's one thing in 2021 I am determined to change. And on this journey, has anyone in particular inspired you? Oh, golly. Well, there is one client. I mean, the chamber have just been wonderful. No. Stop it. Stop <laughs> it. Oh, shucks. So people that have inspired me, there's lots of people that I have learned from over the years. You know, in my career previous to running a business, mm. I was lucky enough to have several mentors along the way, which taught me a lot over the years. I would say though, one thing I've done a lot in the last couple of years is read around business and read a lot around similar companies to us in different parts of the world and how they've succeeded. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple that have been quite inspiring and a couple of the books I've read that have really helped me. There's a book called They Ask You Answer, which I keep next to me, written by a fellow who went on to found a business called The Sales Line that I would recommend to everyone. He ran a business called River Pools and Spas in America, which started off as a small swimming pool company in a small town in America. And they're now the US's largest swimming pool supplier and manufacturer. And that story is one that is basically based on content marketing and maintaining your website, asking all the questions that your customer has, giving away value up front, and then trusting the customer to come back and buy from you later. Ethos is a lot about what we talked about with our clients and how we try to operate as a company. And so that's been inspiring. Well, yeah, I think it was alleged that Bill Gates said if he was down to his last dollar, he'd spend it on marketing because it's all yeah. about getting that message out there. Do you have an end goal for this business where you're taking it? Are you going to take over the media world? <laughs> this business is very much, as you noted earlier, we're still quite young and we're 
very much in the growth zone at the moment. And while in the growth zone, I've found that the business tends to pivot in different directions as you work out what people want the most. Mm. What I really want us to be able to provide is a complete content marketing service for people. Mm. So we'll build you an excellent website. We'll maintain it for you. We'll add the content to it that brings people to your website regularly. We'll then distribute it through social media, email, podcast. You know, we'll work with and collaborate with people. We'll create the videos that people will watch on that website and we'll make your social media spark. Mm. So we want to offer that holistic service to people and be that kind of one-stop content shop. And so I very passionately believe that, you know, the internet is littered with content, but quality content can be hard to come by sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of people are on transmit, but it's doing something that people will want to receive is the Mm. difficult thing. And so just to round off, if you had a piece of advice for our business listeners, what would it be? I would say that the success that we have had has generally been down to a couple of factors. One, every time I make time to work on a business, something positive happens. Either there's an uplift in staff performance somewhere, we spot opportunities that we missed before because we were working too hard. We produced better work because we took a breather and took a step back and looked at what we were doing and we stopped being busy fools or something like that. So I would try and carve out, start with a couple of days a month and build from there. But honestly, I'm terrible for finding time to work on the business and every strategic webinar, podcast, everyone says the same thing. But Mm. when you actually make the time to do it and you see the difference, that's got to be it. The second thing that I found when I left employment and started up again, and was probably a little bit proud to do it to begin with, but lean on your network. The old cliche that your network is your net worth really is true. The people you know, if you can provide value to them, they will return it and they will help you. And referrals are like cold dust. So mm-hmm. lean on your network and look after your network and try and build it best you can. And to do that, you probably ought to join a chamber so that you can oh, connect, yeah. grow and succeed. Look <laughs> at that. And again, even though you help us with our comms, I didn't even prime you for that one. Exactly. Yeah. And to be honest with you, the setting that we're in right now, myself and the good people at Fresh Air, Paul and Martin helped me with a recent project with a client that we managed to produce some really good work for. And that connection has come about through the chamber. So it really does work. Oh, bless you. Thank you very much. And Paul, good luck. It's great to have you as part of the chamber family. And I wish you every success. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much. Lovely to be on. In Conversation With is produced by Fresh Air Studios. Full audio production services for podcasts, live links and corporate communications. Visit freshairstudios.com. Presented by Stuart Elford. Produced and engineered by Paul Philpott. Edited and mixed by Martin Burgess-Moon. Production support by Lisa Hartwell. Copyright Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce and Fresh Air Studios Limited. All rights reserved. <laughs>